time for the 85th QuackCast. Today is the 26th of March, 2012. This is called the Application of Science. It seemed so easy. In 2010, an article was published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Preventing Surgical Sites Infection in Nasal Carriers of Staphylococcus aureus. Patients were screened for the carriage of Staph aureus, including MRSA, I prefer calling it MRSA, and those that were positive underwent a five-day perioperative decontamination procedure with chlorhexidine baths in an antibiotic, mupirocin, up the nose. The results were impressive. Before the intervention, the infection rates were 7.7%. After the infection, it was 3.4%. That's a pretty good drop in surgical infections. One of the orthopedic groups approached us, us being hospital administration, pharmacy, nursing, and infection control, of which I am the chair, actually more of a lazy boy recliner, if the truth be known, to implement the protocol in their patients, citing a similar study in an orthopedic population. Great, this should be an easy enough intervention. I should have known better, of course, for long experience has continually demonstrated what appears to be simple, the application of the medical literature to medical care, never is. First up was whether the study was applicable to our patients. Resources are going to be devoted to an intervention, so going forward we had to demonstrate that the bang was worth a buck. These are financially lean times with cutbacks and declining reimbursement, so every expenditure of time and money has to be justified. In the bizarro accounting of healthcare, not every hospital administration will include money saved in the evaluation of an intervention, only the money spent. Fortunately, I work in a hospital system with a remarkably strong commitment to patient safety and quality, so there was little resistance on that point. Still, all overall surgical infection rates were less than 1%. So we are already doing at baseline better than the New England Journal of Medicine folks were at the end of their study. When I see infection rates going from 77 to 3.4%, I have to wonder if the benefit of the intervention in the study is a surrogate for deeper problems with infection prevention at that hospital. Maybe there was a decrease in infections with decolonization because, well, they were sloppy with compliance with other more basic infection prevention strategies. There's this group of practices called the SKIP interventions, a series of interventions such as keeping the glucose low, keeping the patient oxygenated and warm, giving perioperative antibiotics that, when consistently applied, result in a large drop in postoperative infections. Perhaps they were sloppy with their skip, and that's why their initial rate was 7.7%. I have no way of knowing. Also, I can't help but think that there is a lower limit to the infection rates under which it will be impossible to go. As long as we operate on people, we will always have some infections, no matter what we do for prevention. One of our surgeons had his only infection for the year in an emergency case, it was a 450-pound woman with a glucose of 600 and a two-pack-a-day smoking habit. Even after a week in the hospital, she still had dirt tattooed on her palms and feet. I'm not surprised she got an infection. 
and I think zero infection should be our goal. I am just not so certain that it is realistic given the comorbidities of some of our patients. How low can you go? That's a question for the limbo and infection control. I also wondered if we had infections that would be amenable to screening and decolonization. Many of the orthopedic staph aureus infections we have are presenting late, four to eight weeks postoperatively. Given the virulence of staph aureus, where people usually become symptomatic the day they acquire the bacteria, I suspect the infections we had been seeing in the orthopedic population were acquired after discharge. If so, we may make no impact on our infections by beating down the staph aureus in the perioperative period. Still, we do have the occasional staph aureus infection, both MRSA and MSSA. Staph colonization is a risk factor for subsequent infections, and the orthopedic group wanted to do something, so it seemed reasonable. I can count on one hand the number of times a surgeon has been the one to ask for help in reducing infection. We usually take the suggestions to them. It was an opportunity I did not want to miss. We had evidence. We had science to drive change. At first, it was suggested that we not bother to screen, but treat everybody. Everyone has MRSA, right? Wrong. In Washington, and here in Oregon, we call it Washington, not Washington State. I hate it when people call it Washington State. They mandate screening for all ICU admissions, and we know that about 20% of our patients had staph aureus in their nose, of which about 2% were MRSA. With mupirocin resistance already at 14% in some parts of the United States and chlorhexidine resistance being described, the last thing I want to do is increase the use of these drugs. Resistance, said the Borg, is inevitable. Or they said something like that. The cost-efficacy analyses, which make my head hurt like Mr. Gumby, suggests we should treat everyone, but the authors minimize the threat of future antibiotic resistance. We live in a world that is running out of antibiotics. We are sliding into the post-antibiotic era, and I don't want to drive resistance any harder than necessary. The motto is, use it and lose it. And I'm also convinced that you die of your specialty. Cardiologists die of cardiology problems, and ID doctors will die of resistance infections. It makes me glad I'm not an obstetrician. The next step was deciding how patients should be screened. A nasal swab misses 30% of MRSA carriers. So to maximize the yield, probably requires a swab of the nose, the throat, the skin folds, the armpits, and the rectum. Five separate swabs would make it cost prohibitive. Each one is about $120. But if you use one swab, in what order do you swab people? Always end at the anus. That's my motto. And the PCR, polymerase chain reaction, is not approved for every body specimen. So in the end, we decided that the published data only screened with nasal swabs, so we would as well. We may miss a few MRSA carriers, but they would be rare. And the perfect is the enemy of the good, and reality often requires a little bit of compromise. The next roadblock turned out to be coordination of care. The nasal swab had to be collected within 30 days of the planned surgery. 
someone had to note if the swab was positive for MRSA or MSSA, call the patient, call the pharmacy for a prescription of chlorhexidine and mupirocin, and then get the antibiotics started a few days before the surgery. When 22 in 100 have a positive PCR, initially the tests were missed since no one was responsible for acting on the result. Most of the people who need a new joint are old and, by definition, not mobile. And getting to the pharmacy was limiting by both the patient mobility and transportation. Getting the prescription to the patient was difficult to do consistently, and transitioning the outpatient prescription to the inpatient setting was equally unreliable. Patients were not bringing in their medications. We did not want to duplicate prescriptions and cost. And physicians were not reordering the mupirocin chlorhexidine, thinking the patients had brought their own. Eventually, we sorted that out by making one person responsible for the coordination of that care. To compound the problem, many patients have to pay out of pocket for their medications, and there are two formulations of the mupirocin, the much more expensive formulation made for use in the nose. Of course, it's really weird how when nasal mupirocin started to be commonly used, a new, more expensive formulation became available just for the nose. We elected to go with the less expensive formulation as, as best I can determine, there's no evidence for increased efficacy of the more expensive formulation. Then perioperatively, we decided to give, rather than substitute, vancomycin for the usual cefazolin if the patient had MRSA. Since only 2% of the patients had MRSA, it was rare enough that it was missed. Vancomycin has many characteristics that make it the archetype piece of shit antibiotic, and I did not want to lose the efficacy of cefazolin for MSSA. However, initially there was no single person responsible for noting that the patient had MRSA and changing the perioperative antibiotics. All too often, vancomycin is either not given or given too late to have effect. Vancomycin, requiring an hour infusion instead of the usual IV push of cefazolin, needs to be given ahead of time and can throw quite the monkey wrench into the workflow of the OR if a case has to be delayed an hour or more for an antibiotic. It took well over six months of trial and error to work out the kinks in the protocol with just one orthopedic group and one hospital to apply the evidence and get the process to run smoothly. Murphy's Law states that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. I agree with the suggestion that Murphy was an optimist. Despite all the work, for some patients the process is grinding to a halt from an unexpected source. As I mentioned, the swab for staff costs about $120, and Medicare, which many joint patients have for their insurance, will not and does not pay for screening. So for several months, we, fortunately not me, received irate calls from patients about the $120 charge, and now Medicare patients have to sign a waiver when they get tested, stating that they understand the swab will not be covered by insurance, and they will be responsible for the costs of the test. And not every patient has or wants to pay $120 for an MRSA swab. Part of the issue of instituting the protocol is that, in the United States at least, we do not have a healthcare system. One group pays, one group runs the hospital and the OR, and a third group does the surgery. 
it would perhaps seem so much smoother to implement if we had a unified health care system. I will admit I dream of universal health care where the system will be totally screwed up in one consistent way rather than totally screwed up in the hundreds of ways it is now. And I really, really want to sit on those death panels. That would be fun. Has it worked? Too early to say, and I hate to jinx myself. But in the nine months since the protocol was introduced, despite all the glitches, we've had no staphylococcal infections in that orthopedic group. I am cautiously optimistic the effort has paid off. We hope to spread the protocol to other orthopedic and high-risk surgeries now that we have worked out the kinks. Of course, I expect a whole new collection of unexpected complications. I guess this is one of those times where that stupid phrase, expect the unexpected, actually applies. I expect something unexpected to happen in trying to implement the protocol. I read papers all the time about how this or that intervention improves patient outcomes. When you read the papers, it seems ever so simple to apply the results to the real world, but it takes an amazing amount of work by a large number of people to coordinate the care that even a simple intervention can entail. In the end, we, and that we is mostly everybody except me, accomplish what we set out to do, only to be stopped short by a lack of Medicare payment in a large segment of our patients. This is one of the many quality initiatives at my institutions that have resulted in decreased morbidity and mortality. Last time I talked about this issue, I looked to see if there had been any similar initiatives in the scam world. What are chiropractors, acupuncturists, naturopaths, and their fellow travelers doing to improve patient care, to decrease morbidity and mortality, and to improve outcomes? At the time, I found nothing published. I would have thought that chiropractors would have been interested since there are these things called never events, things that are never supposed to happen, one of which is patient death or serious disability due to spinal manipulative therapy. In their world, of course, it's not a never event in that it should never happen. It is a never event because it doesn't happen. A quick search of the Googles and the PubMeds for quality improvement in the scam world, and I find nothing. Must be nice to be perfect. It sure results in a lot less work. <laughs>